finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, and then we talk about them. And uh, for this episode, we read The Third Man by Graham Greene. So this book, well, this novella, actually, as a lot of people know, was written by Green as an exercise for a screenplay that he wrote. Yeah, so most people would know The Third Man as a 1947 film noir thriller uh, directed by Carol Reed, which has a really famous performance by Orson Welles. He kind of shows up in the last act. To play a character whose presence hangs over the whole story. And he has a maybe one of the most memorable scenes in cinema history. But in order to write the screenplay, to get his sort of thoughts in order and to work out, I guess, like, the mechanics of the plot and the tone he was going for, Green wrote this short novella before he wrote the screenplay. Right. And the edition that we read includes The Third Man... And The Fallen Idol, which is a screenplay novella adaptation for one of his short stories called The Basement Room. Which I believe that film is also directed by Carol Reed, right? Right, yes. So our edition was published in 1951 by Heinemann, and it's supposedly the movie versions of both of those novellas. It's the original novella for The Third Man, and the adapted novella of The Fallen Idol, which he originally called, like I said, The Basement Room. Wait, so he wrote a short story, then rewrote it as a novella in order to rewrite it as a screenplay? Yes. That is a weird process. Well, it was interesting, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about Graham Greene in general, but it was interesting because he's considered one of the most adapted Authors, I think like 62 of his books and stories have been made into movies, well, which he, is interesting because when we were talking about A Christmas Carol, I forget if it was myself or you said that this must be one of the most adapted stories of all time. Yeah. And I think for sheer volume, The Christmas Carol probably has been manifested many more times than Graham Greene's stories, but most of his stories and novels and novellas at some point have been adapted into movies. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg thing, but I, he, you know, he was a prolific screenwriter, so it makes, it makes sense that a lot of his stuff will get adapted. He's a really interesting figure, I think, um, from a literary perspective, because, well, I don't know how much you have in your notes about him. Well, the only thing I was going to mention is he was born in 1904, he died in 1991, he was a British writer, mm-hmm. and he considered himself a British writer who wrote thrillers, mm-hmm. but he sort of fits really nicely in the whole British noir period, because he wrote a lot of sort of books that were political, about espionage. He was interested in this sort of moral and political crossover that a lot of these sort of Cold War stories had. Well, the term noir has a sort of weird relationship with literature because it's it i mean it's it comes from film noir right like and film noir in a lot of ways was responding to and adapting a sort of movement or like a style that had been percolating in 
you know, more sort of populist, pulpy genre literature for a while. And then in turn, you have uh, literary works that then respond to the films. And so it gets a little, like, mushy of, like, what is noir? What isn't noir? Who's a writer that, like... you? Graham Greene is, like, an especially weird example of that because he's a guy who is writing these thrillers that were then getting adapted into film noir, oftentimes by him as the screenwriter. I think when I think of, like, noir, when I think of British noir, I think more of films. There's more iconic British noir films. Yeah. And when I think of American noir, I think of literature because there's more iconic... American writers who were writing in the noir style, and those books were being adapted for movies as opposed to going the other way around. Because, like, I think you have, like, James N. Kane, and we talked a lot about, like, Chandler and yeah. Hammond and, you know, James Elroy. They were pulp writers who had a fairly large amount of fame, and their characters and their detectives are being made into movies. And when you look at the British side, like you look at something like this, The Third Man, there's really no clear detective, which is something that you think about as iconic in American noir. There's that gritty detective. Well, yeah. Well, I think with American noir, as it were, like what those guys were writing that would then get adapted into these early noir films uh, was like, I think, I tend to think of it as hard-boiled crime fiction. Or hard-boiled detective stories. And some of them have more explicit detectives than others. Like, it's like Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, they're writing about, like, a specific guy. They have, like, a figure that is their detective. You know, like, um... My brain is... Marlowe. Marlowe. (laughs) Philip Marlowe. Or Sam Spade. You know, or Mike Hammer. They're, like, the detective. But... Uh, James M. Can. What is it? Wait, what's that guy's name? James M. Kane. James M. Kane. His guys, he has a detective figure, like a, a clear protagonist who is on the, who is, you know, taking action to unravel this thing, this crime, this conspiracy, whatever it is. But it's rarely a detective. Well, I think Kane, in my mind, he's like, if American noir was on the left and British noir was on the right, Kane would sit clearly in the middle because he kind of waffles between that sort of detective, you know, mm. authority figure. And then, like, British noir, a lot of it is there's an authority figure or there's a mysterious, you know, entity that's running things. But, like, Martin is not a detective. Yeah. Even though he's working as the pseudo-detective role. Yeah, but, like, I don't think it's a very far walk from... Kane's, like, insurance investigator protagonist. Right, exactly. To this befuddled pulp writer who is the protagonist of The Third Man. And something like The Postman Always Drinks Twice, that doesn't have a detective at all. Less so even than this does. Right, but I think what makes this noir, classic noir, is the tone. I mean, it's almost yeah. like we talk about, like... This, Nihilism. Yeah. We talk about this sort of idea that, like, the setting becomes a character... Mm-hmm. You know, this, what is it, the locus? Genus loci. Genus loci. This whole thing about being in Vienna and post-war and having the city divided up and then this sort of 
undercurrent of there's this authority of these four different countries that are ruling this city but then also you have this sort of undercurrent of like the black market and this low level of like authority like the police cap like colonel calloway and all the different sort of middle characters that are in charge of things and that sort of sets that tone of what like a noir in my mind in british is like post-war kind of getting right close up to the cold war it's very yeah. interesting yeah i think i think the most um compelling part of this whole the third man is the setting of vienna it's like a really novel setting for like a noir or really any story because like you said it's post-war there it's one city that is split into five zones yes one controlled by the british one controlled by the russians one controlled by the no it's four zones yeah four zones one controlled by the americans and then an international zone which they're supposed to collaborate over and what's really interesting about it now is that it's while he is clearly like reflecting something that was happening you know at the time or earlier it feels weirdly prescient because vienna in this story is this like it's a city without a nation and it's at the whims of all of these conflicting masters and there's all of this struggle like to figure out jurisdictions to deal with people that aren't respecting those jurisdictions but will use those rules against you and in a way it's like the whole world feels like green's green's vienna now right like this is sort of like a the Vienna, post-war Vienna was like a glimpse into the sort of like neoliberal future of the entire world. Yeah, before we get into the story, because it's re- it's a really great story, but let's talk a little bit about um, Green himself. He, he himself was in the home office, so there is this sort of rumor that he may have some experience with actual espionage and spy work. But that literally every British writer... Before, like, then, who was active before, like, the 70s, there's some kind of rumor that secretly they were a spy. Yes, of course. Every single one of them. What I found most interesting about Green is first of all, he's like a converted Catholic and he's considered a British Catholic writer, but he doesn't, he did not consider himself a Catholic writer because he was a very bad Catholic. Because he was a like a serial well, adulterer. You just got to read the power and the glory right. to get like that. Literally, he calls the first off the power and the glory fucking rules. I love that book. Um, but like the it's about a whiskey priest is yeah. like the term he uses, and then like that's a perfect example. But yeah, that's a really interesting thing about him is this tension between his you know pulp thriller genre populist writings. And his sort of more literary, um, religious, you know, writings that are focused on, like, themes of religion and struggling with religion. And there's, like, he parodies himself in The Third Man. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, he, he himself talked about this split between what he called his entertainments, which mm-hmm. were his popular best-selling novels, and his literary works, which yeah. were often less popular. But, I mean, he kind of, like, he's, 
He's like a lot of British writers. He spends a lot of time thinking about the moral and the political aspects of British society. And I think that's really reflected because one of my favorite books that he wrote was Brighton Rock. Yeah, which is also great. Which is kind of the middle point between the two. It's kind yeah. of like the where they both sort of mash up together. Which I, was also made into numerous movies at yeah. this point. So I think he's kind of like an interesting character. But like you were saying... On the scale of like how lit- how British literary he is, <laughs> and how British pulp he is, I kind of think of him more like a John Le Carr kind of writer than I would think of him as like, you know, like a Charles Dickens maybe. Uh, yeah, I think there is a fair amount of middle of a like crossover between like him and Le Carr. He's a different animal, though. He's he's much more emo- outwardly emotional than someone like Lacar is. Lacar is v- very focused on procedure, and his characters are like very stoic. And you you got to kind of like really tease out their internal life, which is part of what makes him so good and why I'm such a big fan of his. But yeah, I get that. I mean, this is. Like, except for the fact that it is very explicitly about a civilian. Yeah. This could, wouldn't have been out of place as uh, something Lacar could have written. Like, this sort of intricacies of the different zones in Vienna, and this, like, Harry Lyme is this, like, mysterious manipulator figure. Like, that all, like, you could find all of that sort of stuff in his works. But I think it's interesting that... I, well, the main character I think is interesting because he's sort of like a green stand-in. He's a writer, mm-hmm. and he's involved, and he's like an, accidentally involved in espionage, which is kind of a, happens quite often in these sort of post-war thrillers. People accidentally come across some kind of dilemma, and they get embroiled in it. And I think that's what happens to Martin. And I think it's that's one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, it's my favorite. Or oh, you're getting into the the writing conference yes that's my favorite part of the book it's the one part so i watched the i've seen the movie before i rewatched it last night um before recording it and i think the one part where the book is notably better than the movie is this whole sequence of the writing conference which is very much like i said i think it's graham green kind of poking fun at himself well i think so too because he martin's is a writer and of course he's it's very american so he writes westerns He's an American and he writes Western novels. And then he gets confused and mistaken, a case of mistaken identity for a writer that's better than him. Well, okay, so the protagonist of the novel is this guy named Rollo Martins. In the movie, he's named Holly Martins. And there's a recurring gag in the movie. I don't know if it's a gag, but there's a recurring thing that happens in the movie where people keep calling him Harry (laughs) instead of Holly. But he makes his living as a writer of Western novels. Right. And he references a couple of real-life Western novels and, and writers as being influences. He talks about writers of the Purple Sage and stuff like that. And he writes under a pseudonym that is Buster Dexter. And when he arrives in Vienna, this dude who works for like the Cultural Reeducation Office uh, mistakes him for a literary writer named Benjamin Dexter. Right. And it's like, okay, this is Green. Like, Green has, in a sense, split himself into two, and one of them is embodied by one side of Graham Green as mistaken for the other side of Graham Green, essentially, in this novel. 
And he has to, at one, he, in order to avoid getting arrested at one point, Martin goes, acquiesces to this dude's request to go to this, like, literary conference and speak to these people who don't know that he's not this literary writer. And he ha- it's this, like, whole, like, mistaken identity kind of, like, farcical thing where he doesn't, like, they're asking him about James Joyce and he's like, I don't have any opinion on James Joyce. And he's, like, praising these, like, pulp writers and causing this, like, kerfuffle. And I thought that part was really funny. And that's really slimmed slim down in the book. Because in, in the movie. In the movie, he doesn't mistake him for anyone. He just gets excited about the fact that he's a writer and doesn't care what he writes. Mm-hmm. So there's none of that, like, mistaken identity thing in the movie. And it's just much shorter. And so there's less of the, like, Q&A where he's, like, handing out these blistering hot takes because he doesn't give a shit about the literary scene. Yeah, that's a very uh, neat part of a book. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's start with the general plot of sure. the book. So it's, like we said, it's, it's set in post-war Vienna. The protagonist is this writer dude. And the book is entirely narrated by this British police officer named Colonel Cow. Is it Colonel? Yes, Colonel Calloway. The movie weirdly doesn't have any narration except for the very beginning of the movie. It uses the narration of Calloway explaining like what Vienna's deal is. Very briefly in the beginning. And then it does not come up again for the rest of the movie. But Martins is summoned to Vienna by his schoolhood chum, Harry Lyme. Which is a great iconic name for a character. Yeah, it's a really good name. And it's come, they say his name constantly. And so it's like a good like punchy, crabby name. But he's been summoned for reasons he doesn't quite know. But presumably to work some sort of job for him in some sort of capacity... With, like, the propaganda office. Uh, And when he arrives, he finds out almost immediately that Harry is dead. Right. So the beginning of of his arrival, he ends up at the funeral of Harry Lyme. Yeah. And there's a bunch of people he doesn't know. And as he's leaving, he's picked up by Galloway, the police officer, the narrator of the story, who tells him that Harry was a racketeer. And this starts like a thing that is... I, I mentioned nihilism when we were talking about noir. I don't think this is like a totally nihilistic work. And that's kind of the trick of all noir. People love to say like, oh, noir is like nihilism. And it's like this... It's like the example of like the sort of like lost generation existentialism creeping into pulp work. Which is true to a certain extent. But almost none of the like big deal classical like... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Foundational noir works are actually nihilistic. Everything looks nihilistic, and then there's like some kernel of decency and hope in the middle, which is true of this too. But a lot of that nihilism is expressed in this by the fact that everyone just has like a totally everyone except for Martin's, who is like in he is the writer of cowboy fiction in his mind he is the cowboy. Um, everybody has this like totally flippant attitude towards death. Like he's having a drink with Calloway. And Calloway is just, like, he, he, he mentions Lime dying, and then Calloway goes, best thing that could have ever happened to him. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. And everyone is like that. Everyone he meets just, like, does not give a shit about life or death, which is then totally personified towards the end of the novel with this famous speech that Harry Lyme gives to Martins, which we'll talk about later. So the whole thing about Lyme's death is that he was hit by a car and he died. Yeah. And then as Martin is going through the story, he starts to want to investigate 
Lime's death and he talks to a porter at the apartment and this is where the name of the movie comes from. The porter tells him that there were three men at the scene of Lime's death. Yeah, so there's the two guys that he knows were at the inquest who are... So, the, what starts the investigation is just that he wants to prove that Harry was not a, a racketeer. Because what's really clear in the book and is less clear in the movie is that Martin's really, like, loves Lime. Whether or not that's romantic or anything is, like, ambiguous. But he has, like, a ton of affection and loyalty to Lime, which is, like, why Lime contacted him. Mm -hmm. And as he learns more and more about it, he starts to see these inconsistencies in the report of his death, and then the investigation becomes about how he died. And one of the first ones is, like, He's told that Lime died, like, instantly, and then he's told by other people that Lime, like, was thinking of him in the end and gave them money to give to him. And then this, the big thing that cracks open of, like, oh, there's something deeply fishy about the circumstances of his friend's death is when the porter mentions this third man. So it's the two guys who are at the inquest who are friends of Harry's, who are, in the book, it's an American named Cooler and a dude named Kurtz. Right. And Baron Kurtz is the doctor, is Harry Lime's doctor, personal doctor. I thought, I thought Winkle, Winkle was. Winkle was the doctor? Okay. Okay. Um, what we find out later is that Kurtz is like his right hand man. Right. In the, in his, in his racketeer, because we find out he actually is racketeer. Uh, it's those two guys were there and then there's a third guy that he couldn't see his face. Um, but then there's the one of the other big inconsistencies he learns with his death about this death is that the car that hit Harry was driven by his own personal driver, <laughs> and so it's like everyone on the scene who then becomes a driver for Martin's driving him places. Yeah, and he becomes this like sort of sinister presence. But it's like the everyone at the scene is connected to Harry except for the porter, who is the sort of wild card who ends up breaking the whole thing open. Yeah, there's kind of like a weird, creepy scene, and I think this is common in Graham Greene novels, but there's always like this sort of child that's like not as wholesome as you like expect a child to be at that time period. Yeah, so after he finds out about the third man, Martins goes to talk to Harry's girlfriend, who was at the funeral, who is an actress named Anna Schmidt. Anna Schmidt. It's much more clear in the book than it is in the movie that she's... <laughs> a Hungarian who's in Vienna kind of under false pretenses. We do find out in the movie that her papers are faked and were faked by Lime. But yeah. he talks to her and she is like still deeply loyal to, deeply hung up on Lime. She doesn't at all want to entertain the notion that there might be something shady about him. And just doesn't even want to think about it. She's like, he's dead, let him be dead. We don't need to change our perception of him now. It doesn't matter. And that's kind of like one of the big tensions in this is like, if Harry's dead, does it matter that he was a bad guy? He's dead now. Do you think she knew what was going on? I think it's hard to tell from the book if she did or not. I think she, like, not that she knew definitively, but it's like, if she cared to look any, she probably saw the hints, and if she cared to look any deeper, she could have found out, but she didn't care to look any deeper because she was so enamored of Lyme. I think that's part of the problem with, another problem with, Green's writing is he has these sort of kind of women that are like either clueless or unappealing or they're not strong. 
Uh, I I agree that she's unappealing. She's kind of one of like functionally, I think, from like a um, in terms of the like ethical conflicts in the book, she's kind of the main antagonist because she's the one that's like, stop it, leave it alone, just accept it. She's still, she's still very hump on Lyme. She uh, in the movie like. I forget the name of the actor that's playing her, but she gives this, like, really steely performance where it's, like, you get kind of why Martin's falls for her, but also it's, like, him falling for her, like, reveals a character flaw in him where it's, like, dude, don't do not do that. Well, he it, it's kind of kooky that he, like, instantaneously falls in love with her. Well, he is established as being, like, Love strike. Like, he talks about, like, like oh, my flaws are, like, I drink too much and I get angry. I fall in love with girls. I'm just this dumb American cowboy writer. And he is this kind of, like, shambling wreck of a man. But I think that Anna also is a surrogate for Harry Lyme, for Martins, because he didn't get that resolution, that sort of closure of his friendship that he was expecting. Yeah. I and mean, he fully expected to meet with Lime and to work with him mm-hmm. and to find out that he was dead upon... I mean, he nearly misses his funeral. Yeah. So. I mean, that, like, opening... That opening is almost Kafkaesque. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, he's bustled around, he has no idea what's happening, there's all this bureaucracy, people are putting money into his pockets and sending him on his way. He shows up to meet his friend, and someone just casually is like, he's he's dead. The, the line that the porter gives is like, he's already in heaven, or perhaps in hell. And in the movie, he points the opposite directions when he says the things, which is like a little bit of foreshadowing. And then he like takes a taxi and arrives at the very end of the funeral. And it's like, oh, now your friend's dead and you're in this weird city where you're like, there's this whole ecosystem of like black markets and bureaucracy that you have to navigate. And now you're trying to be a detective. But I think that's it because Martins becomes this sort of unintentional detective and then he also becomes embroiled in this sort of racketeering scam where half the people are interrogated. Like, the, some of the police officers or the British Army investigators, whoever, whatever they are, they're, like, grilling him like he knows what's going on. And then the people who are involved in the racketeering assume that he knows what Harry Lyme was doing. So he's kind of getting, like, this sort of pressure from both sides where... He doesn't know what's going on. He knows and nothing, Brit- and everyone is assuming he knows more yes. than he's letting on. Everyone assumes that his personality is an act. And there's a really interesting thing in regards to that that's in the book that's not in the movie because the movie doesn't have any narration, where Calloway makes this distinction between these like two sides of Martins, that there's Rollo, who is like the hard-drinking, you know, punchy-in-the-face cowboy side, and then there's Martins who is the, like, more calm, collected, calculating side, which he identifies as being more dangerous. And then those sides are just in constant conflict throughout the rest of the story. Yeah, because, I mean, he goes to the bar with Calloway, Mm -hmm. not to get information, but basically to get free booze because he can't exchange his British money for money that can be I don't know what kind of I think he has American money and he can't whatever currency he has when he arrives in Vienna he can't spend it and people keep giving him other nationalities of currency yes and then he ends up deciding to stay in the hotel because 
he finds out if he says yes that he is Dexter, then he'll get a free room. Yeah. But the thing is, is the concierge is just like obsessed with this literary conference mm-hmm. and keeps bothering him in the middle of him trying to solve the mystery of his yeah. friend's death. And then like like every noir movie and book, there's a twist and then another twist and another twist until the very end where you're kind of like, is there more? You get to the point where you're thinking like, is there more twists? Is there more okay. twists? Yeah, so we're getting ahead of ourselves. So he goes and he meets with Anna, the actress. And then he's going to take her with him to go talk to the porter again. Uh, because the porter doesn't really speak very much English. Right. And she speaks German. At least more than Martin's does. And when they arrive, the porter's been murdered. And that's where this weird, the weird kid you were referencing shows up. Who keeps like, it's this like tension building thing. It's more effective in the book because you can understand what the kid is saying. Um, but it works well in the movie from a sort of different angle where... It's very alienating because it's like people... So what the kid is doing is he's like kind of snitching on Martins. Right. He's like saying like, Papa, Papa, I saw this guy earlier. Papa, Papa, <laughs> he was a foreigner. Papa, Papa, a foreigner <laughs> murdered the porter. I saw it through the window. And he's like, oh, you silly kid. And he's like, I saw the blood and everything. And it's like, it's again, this like nihilistic flippancy towards the concept of death. Um, in the movie, you can't understand what the kid is saying. So it's just like sort of like feverish, alienating scene where everyone is like talking in foreign languages and looking at him and like Anna abandons him immediately uh, I think she hangs around a little bit more in the book but in the movie she just like pieces out the second they see the cops when they're arriving at the hotel and then he realizes that he's a suspect and he's trying he doesn't know where to go and he gets scooped up by to go to the literary conference and that's why he goes because it's like okay they'll ferret me away it's like in Stockholm Yeah, he won't have to worry about the Vienna police for a little while and then he has this like like the absurdist scene we were talking about in the literary conference which is really funny uh and then the police arrive there to pick him up and there's another sort of like comedic yeah, the, the, and then the people are like why are you picking up Mr. Dexter the literary writer <laughs> <laughs> he signs the other guy's books to like kill yes. time like that part's really funny uh and he keeps writing like notes to the people and he's like I don't know who any of these people are and I hate all these dorks <laughs> uh, but yeah so then they pick him up there and Calloway takes uh, pity on him and he shows him the evidence he has of what Lime was actually what Lime was doing like his racketeering and it turns out to be I mean he's a racketeer but then it turns out to be morally apprehensible what he's doing well, so he's a yeah so the racket he's involved in it, throughout the book, Martin's is like, oh, what is he? Is he tires? Is he selling tires? Is he selling gasoline? Who cares? And Calloway keeps being like, it's not that. It's not that. It's worse. And then he tells him that he, what he's dealing in is penicillin. And specifically what he's doing is he's paying people to steal penicillin from the military hospitals, who are technically the only people that are allowed to have it. Which, again, like I was saying, like this really does feel like, oh, post-war Vienna becomes the entire world after this. But... They're stealing the penicillin, cutting it with other substances. It was one of the examples they give is in the case of the powdered one, cutting it with sawdust, and then selling it to people, and it's having disastrous effects. Like people are getting sick, either from just taking the the adulterated penicillin, or because they're taking it and it's less effective, and now the disease they're having is building up 
resistance to the penicillin because they're taking too low a dose first. So even if they get the real penicillin later, it doesn't help. And it's like, he, he specifically invokes the imagery of like men with gangrenous legs and sick children. In the book, he shows Martin's photographs of dead kids. In the movie, they go to like the children's ward. You don't see any children. Like it's all just like these sort of like creches and like beds with like curtains around them and the nurses moving about but there's this very haunting image of them just throwing away children taking children's toys out of the cribs and just throwing them away to like indicate like this kid just died right now I think this is part of Green's um, kind of Catholic guilt well maybe Catholic guilt but also this sort of meditative recurrence in his writing where he talks about the moral and ethical dilemma of political events and I think this is it like he's talking about like the black market which is sort of it's you know the police turn a blind eye to the black market in general during Mm -hmm. the war and it's sort of kind of like glamorified in like literature and the movies that the black market is like for like getting nylons and caviar and but yeah. like people could die from the things that happened on the black market and that's kind of like it's not like a luxury marketplace which is how it's often portrayed but like you know a marketplace where people could live or die depending on what they got or what they couldn't get yeah i think well one thing one this story now that i think about it is almost kind of an anti-casablanca yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing is, like, yeah, Green, I think, has, like, a pretty complex, or at least, like, nuanced view here, where it's, like, on one hand, so on one hand, you have, like, the International Commission or whatever that's running the and it's, like, this morass of bureaucracy, it's a mess, and, like, people are taking advantage of it, and it's, like, you know, one of the big things that happens is, like, people flee into the Russian section, and the Russians are, like, obstinate, and they won't deal with you. And so it's, like, it becomes this sort of, like, gray area. But then on the other hand, you have the black market, which is this, like, totally libertarian system that is portrayed as being, like, horrific. And Lime is, like, a very libertarian figure. And he is, like, a shadow nightmare man. Yeah. Uh, Like, there's a part in particular where he brags about, like, not paying taxes. And it's, like, okay. So I, I think, like... Graham is really wrestling with these, like, visions of the future, of these, like, ways in which society and the economy can be sort of organized, and he's seeing, like, the the very real dangers of both versions. I think also it's hard, it's getting hard for Martins to sort of reconcile his vision of how Harry is, and how it's turning out that he actually is. Yeah, because he has this, like, it, you know, it's like you said about, like, the romanticized version of the black market. He kind of has that... You, Harry is the embodiment of the black market, in a way. And Martin's kind of has this, like... This view of Lyme as this, like, rakish, roguish, romantic figure. And that is being challenged by how awful he turns out to actually be. But then there's also this sort of interesting thing where it is, like, when you think back... On like a bully or maybe even like an abusive relationship where it's like you have this image of the person then you find out these facts about the person that challenge that image and then you start to realize that actually they don't challenge it 
and how your past experience with that person actually aligns perfectly with the reality of how bad they were because he sort of has this moment where his illusion of Harry breaks when he realizes that like the ways he used to take advantage of him and leave him holding the bag and like treat him so callously it's actually perfectly compatible with the vision that Calloway gives him of Harry as this heartless crime lord. So then there's a twist. Yeah, so he goes to Anna's to tell her, like, hey, Harry was bad. He gets drunk first. Of course. And then he goes to Anna's to be like, Harry was a bad dude, and I'm in love with you instantaneously because I'm a simp. And she doesn't want him, and she's in the process of rejecting him when he looks out the window, and he sees Harry Lime. But I think it's interesting to note that Callaway encourages him to get drunk. Yeah. So well, he's partly responsible. And they go to, like, did you talk about the bar where you can only get one drink? Yes, yeah, so the first bar they go to, this is another thing where it's like the narration really, like, layers this texture in that you don't really get in the movie. Of um, Yeah, it's this weird bar in the, I forget which zone it's in, but it's like... They only serve, what was it, peach schnapps or something? It's some kind of Viennese cocktail. Yeah, but it's, they only have one drink and it's served in like a fancy glass and it's like sickly sweet. And Callaway takes him there partially because it's like, well, you know, I don't, I'm not going to pay for something good for this guy. But yeah, it's this weird setting. It's also like, it's more clear in the movie than it is in the book, but there's this image of, like, Vienna where it's, like, all of these old buildings and fancy places and just the, everything is next to just rubble. Where it's, like, there's all these great shots in the movie where it's, like, here's a cool-looking Viennese building and the next door is just ruins. And that's, like, all over the city. And so it's, like, there's this weird, like, Probably used to be, like, a fancy bar tucked away in some corner, and now it's this, like, weird little oddity in this sort of bombed-out hellscape. But yeah, so he goes out, and he chases after Harry Lyme, and he just disappears, seemingly into the ground. And then he goes and tells Calloway, and what they find out is that Harry is using the sewers... Of course. ...to travel around. So Vienna has this, like, elaborate sewer system... And there are these, like, kiosks that you that are open to the public because the Russians don't want them closed. Because the Russians are shady. That just will give you entrance to the sewer. And, and there's a sewer police, but they only patrol during certain hours. Right. And this is, like, where the, liter- the black market literally becomes a physical sewer. Yeah. Harry becomes this, like, under... He is a literal underworld figure. He's, like... He's Charon. There's like a. There's literally like an underground river. He, like, he's back from the dead. Yeah. So then you realize that Harry Lime has faked his death to kind of wash away the problems that he's having with the investigation into his black market penicillin business. Yeah, but he still has this like affection for Martin's. So Martin sets up. He goes to Kurt's. And he tells him, like, I want to meet Harry. And Kurtz is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Uh, but he says, just tell him to meet me at this Ferris wheel. And this is, like, the iconic scene of the whole story. It's beautiful in the movie. There's, like, at one point there's just this shot of, like, straight up from under the Ferris wheel of it moving. And it's just this, like, 
machine whirling in the sky and it's like oh like the ferris wheel is vienna it's also harry and it's like they get in the he shows up and he's very friendly and genial and he's played by orson welles in the movie and it's a fucking fantastic performance it's like perfect small because he's only really in like this scene and the very end um it's like a perfect usage of orson welles because he's just he needs to be charming and he is, like, instantaneously charming as Harry Lime. He's, like, magnetic. He's got that great voice. This is, like, Orson Welles at, like, the peak of his hotness. He's got like, these big, soulful eyes. And he just, like, fucking kills it. <laughs> um, but they get on the Ferris wheel. And this is... I love the literary conference. This is probably the best part of the story. Is like, Martins is trying to, to lay the guilt trip on him. Like, to, to get him to, like confess to turn himself in to face repentance because he's had this image this whole time he references it explicitly of like in his mind this is like this was like the western story where the gunslinger runs into town and takes revenge on the sheriff who harassed his friend and like stole his gold claim or something Mm -hmm. and now what he's revealing finding out is like he was friends with the devil and they're up on the ferris wheel and Lyme gives this speech where, like, where he's like, you know, look down here at all the people moving around, these ants. And he's got this God's eye perspective on them. And he's like, could you tell me, would you, like, feel bad if one of these, would you feel remorse if one of these dots stopped moving? If I could give you $25,000 tax-free, that's how you know he's, <laughs> that's how you know he's evil, uh, and one of these dots would stop moving... You know, would you take? Would you would would you take it, or would you know? Would you calculate how many dots you could lose? And so it's like he feels like that he. This is his perspective on people that he's like. They're they're just figures. They're just numbers. He says this really chilling thing where it's like the dead are happier. Like the dead aren't suffering, and it's it is like, this really you know dark, nihilistic, narcissistic perspective. Like, what did you make of this whole this whole sequence in his speech? Well, I think it kind of, I think Martin had this sort of idealized version of Lyme. Mm-hmm. And I feel like at this point, Lyme reveals his true nature and Martin sees that, but it's staged in a way where Lyme is still, he's literally elevated. Yeah. You know, he, you know, so he has this sort of complicated conversation with him and then he realizes that, well, I mean, Obviously, Lyme has changed since they were schoolboys. But I think part of the thing is he hasn't. Like, Martin's in this scene realizes that, like, he's just a dot to him. That's why he was willing to let him hold the bag in their schemes. That's why he, he one, in this scene, they talk about, you know, trying to escape through the back way of a casino. And, like, Lyme took the secret escape route and left Martin's as a distraction. Yeah. And, and he realizes that the whole time this guy was like a psychopath who never saw me as a person. Well, I think that's what he's doing now. But now he has this added complication in that Martin didn't play the role correctly because he usually sort of stands there befuddled and wholesome. And people are like, this guy isn't the guy who was doing this. But instead, Martin starts to investigate. He gets sort of embroiled in the mystery of what happened to Harry Lyme. He gets involved with the woman that Lyme left Mm -hmm. he becomes sort of complacent and he becomes like almost like a pawn that these British officers are using to catch Lyme because I think that all along they knew that he wasn't dead 
Yeah. And then well, they cre- construct this sort of complicated... I don't think they did. Callaway talks about, like, feeling like an idiot and a fool for, like, getting tricked. I, I think that they didn't think that Lime was still alive. I think they just thought that his operation was still going. And that Martins. And that Martins would help them reveal it. And then the the revelation that Lime is alive kind of really fucks up Callaway. Yeah. But they dig up the body. And there's a really... He reveals in this scene to Lime. Like, he's like, they dug up the body. They know that it's not you in there. And in the in the movie, uh, Orson Welles, like, they just show his face, like, reacting silently to that. And it's, like, really great acting where he's like uh-oh like, but I think it's interesting because the term third man starts to be used a lot in the second half of the novella and the third man could be a lot of different people it could be the third man that was at the motor at the mm-hmm. accident it could be the third like Martins is the third man in this sort of long term black market scheme there's you know he could be the third man who is actually in charge of running this investigation into the black market yeah it's or it's lime himself or it's lime himself. which he literally is the third man because the harbin his, the guy that they kill is the dude that they think is lime's body like that's who the porter sees the third man he sees is lime i'm just gonna read a little bit of lime speech because it's just so good he says uh victims is this from the movie or this is from the book there's the book? i will read there's a line well i'll get to it and it says victims don't be melodramatic rollo look down there and he went on pointing through the window at the people moving like black flies at the base of the wheel. Would you feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I said you could have 20,000 pounds for every dot that stops, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money without hesitation? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spare? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. And he gave his boyish conspiratorial smile. It's the only way to save nowadays. Like, so cold. So chilling. Like, such a, like, imagine that's your friend. But also that like, might appeal to Martins because he's sort of, he's, like, down on his, constantly down on his luck and, like, hustling for, like, food and places to stay. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why he was willing to go to Vienna, because he was having money trouble. Yeah, but he's got, like, a core of goodness that Harry Lyme does not have. Like, when he's shown the photographs of the dying children, like... He's he's moved, and if, if that's out of guilt for like having enabled Harry Lyme forever or not, he, he still like tries to do the right thing. But in the movie, uh, to get the timing right, Orson Welles added another little bit to this. Not to that speech. I think it happens later when they come down off of the uh, Ferris wheel. But it's one of them. It's maybe even more famous than the one of those dots stops moving forever speech. Because it's only in the movie, but I think it, it does a lot to illuminate uh, even uh, his character in the book. So he says, you know what that felt... Uh, he says, he says uh, Holly, I'd like to cut you in. There's nobody left in Novena, Vienna I can really trust. We've always done everything together. I don't know. This is a hard song. The important part is he says, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had blo- brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And you know what they produced? The cuckoo clock. (laughs) And it's like, it's funny. And it's kind of brutal. But it's also like, in that moment, Lyme kind of becomes like, he he becomes like what the black market is. He becomes like war's shadow Mm -hmm. in that moment. And he's, that makes him like totally inhuman. But also it's like very realistic. Like that's, 
I don't know. I think about a lot of, like, conservative pundits and these people who glorify war and conflict and violence. And it's like, how is their perspective really any different than that? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it kind of shows sort of the profiteering nature of these, like, sort of figures that people on the surface respect and have fondness for without really knowing the true nature. You know, like, Martin's is kind of like a fool because he gets tricked. Yeah. But then he's also sort of enlightened because he's morally superior to Lime. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate The Third Man, the movie and the novella, as being a very... I think they are anti-war stories. It is an anti-war story. But it is a very different one than I think we usually get. We get a lot of, like, war is bad because... Like, 1917 came out last year. And that was all about how, like, war, like, destroys the people that fight in it. And it, like, clear cuts, like, a generation of young men who could do so many much other stuff. And we have stories about, like, the, the, the immediate violent decimation and desolation caused by war. Whereas this is about the much more sort of like subtle and sinister after effects of war. That when it busts through a place and destroys the social order and destroys the people, it leaves these shadows that these parasites can crawl into and these profiteers can sort of worm their way into the foundation now that the cracks have been busted open by the bombs and the bullets. And Harry is like this personification of that. And Martin's is trying, like, his best to fight back against it. But at the end of the day, even if they get rid of Martin's, like, the black market remains. Like, just because its avatar is gone, that, like, the dark god is still sleeping in the sewers of Vienna. Well, I think that's it, because they've unleashed this poison that's destroying the city, mm-hmm. and there's no way to make it come back. Yeah. Because even if Lime doesn't do it, there's someone else who's going to come in and fill that void. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. But yeah, so then after that, it's like, Martin's is like, well, I have to take care of Harry. Like, he's he's much more dangerous than I thought he was going to be. Uh, and so he concocts his plan with Calloway, uh, which also we didn't mention, there's a recurring bit where he, when he doesn't like him initially, he keeps calling him Calligan. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a character... Yeah, because he makes a very clear distinction that he's British and not Irish. Yeah. There's also this character, Payne who's, like, uh, who works for Cowboy, who is, like, a fan. There's a really funny part in the beginning when they go to that weird bar where Martins gets angry and this guy beats him up, but the whole time he's beating him up and, like, pulling him out of the bar to take him to his hotel, he's talking about how big a fan he is of his books. He's, like, one of the (laughs) only characters that we meet who recognizes him and knows his novels. But so they construct this plan, because Martins is in, uh, Lime is in the Russian zone, and the Russians are uncooperative and they can't get a hold of him. He also has them pick up Anna for her false papers, but then uh, Martins gets the British police to intercede to, to sort of rescue her. But so they can't arrest Lime unless he gets out of the Russian zone. They can't go into the Russian zone necessarily to get him because that'll cause a conflict with the Russian police. So they can't go into the Russian zone to arrest Lime, so they have to lure him out. Uh, so they come up with this plan where. Martins will go and very obviously sit in this cafe like he's waiting for him. And then they'll block off all of the sewers. And then they'll post a guy in the coffee shop. And when Lime shows up, they'll catch him. 
Uh, in the book, what happens is it takes forever. Uh, cat is sneezing. <laughs> um, it takes forever. And while it's happening, Martin drinks like seven cups of coffee, which made my stomach hurt sympathetically. <laughs> and then he gets frustrated and he tries to call Callahan on the phone. And as he's doing that, Lime shows up and is spooked and makes a run for it. He runs into the sewer and we get a chase sequence. There's a shootout uh, where a young police officer dies. And then eventually Martins shoots Harry Lime who dies while he's like desperately trying to crawl for the light and climb up out through a manhole. Yeah, and I kind of, it's kind of like Lime gets killed, but then he also gets sort of humiliated. He becomes a pathetic figure. Yes. In the moment of In the um, movie, there's a really great shot of, it's from the the level of the street, like the camera's like on the ground, and we just see Lime's fingers reaching up through the grate (laughs) out of the sewer. It looks really cool. And it's like, kind of very sad and pathetic. It plays out slightly differently in the movie. So in the movie, Anna shows up to tell him, like, knock this off, and to to reiterate that theme of, like, you know, just leave this alone. Like, he's gone. He's out of our hands. Like, you don't need to keep doing this. And then Lime is watching, like, from the distance on, like, top of, like, a ruined building. And then he comes in through the back, and then the chase starts. Martins runs off after him, like, immediately, almost as soon as they get into the sewer. He goes down with Calloway and Payne in the movie. So he runs off almost immediately. Um, And then we get a long chase... That's just Harry and the uh, the sewer police. It's like really cool. They have like torches. There's all this like light in the in the tunnels and these like harsh shadows. And he's like ducking in and out of these like small alleyways and like running along in like the water. And then he runs into Martin's Payne and Calloway. And something similar to the shootout happens, but the police officer that dies in the movie is Payne. Oh, okay. And then Calloway shoots. Martins and Martins makes a run for the stairs to climb out of the sewer, and then as he's do making this like desperate scramble for life and light, and he's too weak to push it open, that's when Martins shoots him finally to like put him down. Yeah, because he's like a he's like a like a dog, like a feral dog at this point. Yeah, and then the end of the novel has like a last meeting with Calloway to sort of like wrap things up, and then Martins and Anna walk off together and. Callie observes it like they start walking separately and then by the time they pass over the horizon and out of his view uh, they're arm in arm the much better I think ending in the movie is like that image starts happening uh, Martins leans against this like cart in the road and starts smoking a cigarette and Anna just walks past him and off into the distance and that is the very last shot of the movie yeah I think the book sort of uh, kind of like bookends the two funerals of Harry Lyme. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that also happens in the movie. They have the second funeral of Harry Lyme, but it's just like the police officers and there's no one's crying. Because now it's like the true. They have the funeral for the image of the man where people cried and it was this like sad extravagance, and now they have the funeral for the actual man and it is lonesome. And I mean, it's kind of the. Uh, it's kind of the Ghost of Future Past sequence without the ghost or Scrooge in it. Right. Uh, but yeah, but the book has a sort of implied happy ending of them getting together, whereas the movie is more bleak. Apparently, Carol Reed and Graham had a fight about it, but Graham later said that uh, Carol was proved correct. Yeah. 
Which I think is better. I, I think that fits the tone of the story more. In the beginning of the volume that we have, there is a preface, and Green talks specifically about the differences in the novella and the screenplay and the influences that Carol had. Carol Reed. Carol Reed had on the action and the narrative of the story. And you can sort of see the sort of difference between what was happening in the movie and what was happening in the novella. I think that the movie is better overall, probably, though there are things that I like in the novella that aren't in the movie. I found, I I said this when I was reading it, I found it more confusing than I thought a Grimm novel would be. Because he's usually more fastidious about things. I think the, like, the temporality and the, the sort of locus of the POV is a little weird. Because he has Calloway narrate the whole thing. But there are moments where you kind of forget that it's being narrated by a character in the story because he spends so much time telling you things that he didn't see. Because a lot... He's narrating the whole story, but a lot of it is he's narrating to us what Martins is telling him after the fact. And I... I, I found that to be very confusing in the beginning. It's and a little bit alienating, I think. I, I didn't bother me as much as I think it bothered you, but I totally get what you're saying. I don't totally understand why he made that choice. I'm not sure what that means, like, thematically or not. Maybe he just felt like he needed a narrator and that character made the most sense to be it. it's kind of a weird choice because when you watch a movie, a lot of times there's not a strong narrator that the characters move mm-hmm. the plot along. So it kind of seems weird when you, you would write a story that had a narration knowing that when it was filmed, it wouldn't have a narration. Yeah. I get, though, why it's not just told from Martin's perspective because he wants him to be a little bit more of an enigma. And, like, the movie, you know, doesn't spend any time in his, like, direct headspace. So I get why it's not him that's narrating it and it's not told from his perspective. But I do think the choice, like you said, is a little bit weird and a little bit uncinematic. Speaking of uncinematic or things that are cinematic, one of the weirder changes, or one of the weirder details, in retrospect, in the novella, is that he gives Lime a diegetic leitmotif. Lime is constantly whistling a tune that announces his presence, which feels like a very cinematic detail. Like, it's like, okay, you can imagine, like, his shadow moving, it's very recognizable because it's Orson Welles, and the sound of the whistling, like, heralding his arrival. That's not in the movie. Yeah, and I kind of feel like that would be something that could be easily translated into the movie. I don't think the movie's missing it, uh, but it is weird because it's it feels like he, that's a thing that's in there specifically for the movie that is just not in the movie at all. So speaking of the music stuff, this movie has one of the most iconic scores of all time. Yeah. It's by Anson Karras. It's all zither. It's it's um, it's haunting in a weird way. It's very jaunty and, and almost jolly in contrast to like the dark nature. It creates a kind of like sense of irony. I think Ebert described it as being, I think he said jolly but joyless, like whistling in the dark. Well, maybe uh, that's the where... That's the nod to the part in the novel with the whistling. Uh, yeah, maybe. But it's, the like, you can tell they knew they had a banger on their hands. Because literally the first shot of the movie 
it's just an extreme close up on the what do you call it the sound hole of the zither with the strings vibrating over the like iconic third man theme I think this movie I watched it for the first time when I was like at the beginning of me really getting into like film and thinking a lot about movies and reading like all books about film and film criticism and this is like a really good like starter film for a film buff it's a good way to like train yourself to recognize the different parts of filmmaking because it's got you know really notable performances it's got a really iconic score it's got really dazzling cinematography so you can kind of pick out all the different parts of filmmaking and then see the way the hand of the director and the way those things are sort of melded together when we talked about it i said the same thing about um breakfast at tiffany's and i feel the same way about this where it's just like it's masterfully directed well that's what i was thinking about this when you were talking about the iconic um theme song i was thinking about moon river yeah, yeah, so then that's another, like, I, I would put this, the third man theme is kind of on the same level. It's weird because it gets used a lot for, like, it gets used a lot and referenced a lot in other things, but it's almost always used to, like, indicate, like, the malady, rather than, like, used to invoke the feeling of the third man itself, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure why that is. I guess because it is kind of like an ironic contrast to the action already. And then people kind of use it for what it feels like, but yeah, it's a great score. I've listened to it a ton of times. I like I like the novella a lot, and I mm. like this sort of like the things that you mentioned. I liked this sort of writerliness of the like the plot point with Dexter and Dexter. I thought that was interesting, mm. and I did like. I think that Graham Greene had a really good balance of the moral and the political, which I think is his sort of sweet spot. It's more of a story about, like you said, it's a story about war and the effect of war on people than it is about, like, a detective story about finding out who is Harry Lyme. And I think even though they're not as well-known and they're not as sort of replicated characters, the characters of Martins and Lyme are sort of, like, iconic, Mm -hmm. like good versus evil, two sides of a moral situation. They're kind of compliments and they're like adversaries and I think that's kind of interesting. And I like this sort of tension that he creates, which is very noir. Mm -hmm. This sort of tension between Martins and the British police officers and Martins and the investigation. So I really like that sort of balance. And I think that's really, he's really good at creating that tension. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Yeah, I agree. This is also, like, we talk a lot about, like, iconic stories that are, like, constantly referenced and remade. And I think this is a kind of weird example there. I think this story is, in a sense, kind of remade and retold, like, a million times over. But it's much less explicit than when it is with something with The Christmas Carol. But I think there are, like, if you look at superhero comics in particular, which I know I'm the guy that's constantly making this comparisons. You can find, like, echoes of the third man all over the place. Look, I feel like there's no way that this story wasn't an influence on, like, Spider-Man and the Green Goblin or Batman Hush. Like, all of these stories where it's, like, the hero has, has to hunt down a person that ends up being close to them, that they're, they are peeling back these masks on someone that they're supposed to think is, like, their friend. I think a lot of times when modern... When there's a 
a modern product that's supposed to be influenced by this noir. They don't focus on the part of noir that makes it really sort of a special genre. And they start focusing on like weird kind of like affectations of noir. Like gangs. Yeah, they start like, you know, it's like a gangster and everybody's talking like, hey, here ya. You know, they're doing that like sort of like 1940s gangster slang. Or they're sort of focused on like the, you know, the sort of visual aesthetic of the femme fatale and the, you know, the unreliable detective. And I think like Graham Greene and his version, and same thing with like Chandler, especially the tension and the abrasion between the characters is what's really sort of reminiscent of noir. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think like when you read something like Jonathan Leffen, like Motherless Brooklyn, he takes that sort of that tension and that conflict and that sort of character who, you know, this flawed characters and he sort of mixes them in the same way that Graham Greene does where the story becomes about the characters, their interactions and less of sort of like the visual, you know, the visual kind of like costuming of what a noir story is. Yeah, well I think that Motherless Brooklyn's a good comparison. The cat just opened the door. But I think Motherless Brooklyn is perfect because not only does it not fall into that sort of dependence on slang and the sort of mannerisms of what a 1940s detective is because the detective in the story can't even speak in that way and the way that he you know his Tourette's is kind of like a reflection of like his personality and it kind of adds that component that kind of like sets that like tension because a lot of times people don't understand even what he's saying yeah, and I think that's interesting. Well, I was going to say, like, this and Mother's Brooklyn have the kind of, the similarity where it's, like, the classic, like, noir hardball thing is, like, you got the flawed detective, right? Which has become the mainstream. Every detective is flawed now. Like, it's subversive to make, like, a, a pure, upright detective more so than anything now. But over time, those, like, the the archetypal flaws of the noir detective became cool. In and of themselves. Yeah, and it became... Like the hard like, drinking, the rough and tumble... What were you going to say? Yeah, the same thing. Like, wearing the fedora and the, the, you know, the dame with the gams. Like, that kind of shit that becomes sort of, like, the stereotype of, like, what noir is. I mean, you remember a while ago, like, the Animaniacs, they had, like, a, a skit where they were noir detectives. And they yeah, sort of really did. leaned into that sort of persona of what a detective is. But what I was going to say was... This and Mother's Brooklyn, the f- their n- the flaws that their characters have are very much not supposed to be cool. Yeah, exactly. Like they are like the protagonist of Mother's Brooklyn is like in addition to the Tourette's thing, which isn't really like a flaw, but it is like an obstacle to him doing what he's trying to do. Um, he's a dork and a weirdo, and like and so is Martin. Martin's yeah, he's a dork. He's a weirdo. He's a writer. He's a mess. He's, like, a drunk, but not at all in, like, a glamorous, like, thin man sort of way. And then, like, he just gets, you know, overly talky and, like, overly punchy when he gets drunk. Yeah. Uh, and I dig that. I, I definitely appreciate it over, like, the self-conscious coolness. I did want to sort of bring something up to kind of wrap up with Graham Greene. And this was, like, a quote from, like, William Golding, the author of Lord of the Flies. Interesting. He said that Graham Greene was the ultimate chronicler of 20th century man's consciousness and anxiety. 
I don't know about say ultimate, but I definitely think he is a chronicler of uh, consciousness and anxiety. Is that what it was? Yeah. And I think that's sort of, I mean, he, yeah, that, so that's definitely true. And I think it's an interesting take on Green as himself. I also wanted to bring up, because we were just talking about this, but there is a Graham Green cocktail. There is? Yes. What is the Graham Green cocktail? And it was according to Wikipedia. It's vermouth, creme de cassis, good quality London dry gin, and a couple of juniper berries crushed for a twist. It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a martini with creme de cassis instead of bitters. Yeah. And some crushed juniper berries. It sounds pretty good. I would drink that. Yeah, I thought so. Did was, he invent it, or is it just named after it? It's it's was invented in 1951. Okay. So I I mean he didn't create it, but he was definitely around at the time. I mean, I could see him drinking it probably. Yeah, because he kind of has this sort of reputation for being like roguish. He was a womanizer. He was married, but he was a womanizer. We talk about like the archetypal like celebrity male writer like. Um, Hemingway. Yeah, he kind of falls into that category. Yeah, yeah. He's like the writer as like a celebrity, I think, is, is another way. Yeah, yeah. Which is, again, like I think we, we've talked about before. That kind of like persona. I mean, it is a lot like, in a way, reflects like the detective, right? Like it's like, I'm a writer. I'm flawed. I drink a lot and I'm a dick. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. The only problem that I have with it, like I said, it like for a noir film, it really didn't have like... A detective. Yeah, I, I get that. I think like the book is good, but it's just like an example of like a noir or hard boiled or like you know post war thriller. Whereas the movie is one of the greatest movies ever made. Like one of maybe my f- mm, I don't know. It's pretty close to being one of my favorite examples of noir. But it's weird because it kind of like. I, I don't think it's I think it says a lot about like the, the, the breadth and and like the length of history of literature as compared to film whereas I think the, the movie is not drastically better than the book but it is a drastically better movie than the book is a book if that makes sense yeah it but certainly that, does it was written to be made into a movie so obviously the movie version is going to work better than the novel version. So maybe it's not that interesting a point. I don't know. <laughs> but I think this is a cool experiment, too. I enjoyed, like, watching the movie and reading the book. It's kind of like a little bit of a... It gives you an overview of, like, the writing process and the how writing is translated into, you know, visual uh, auditory cinema, which is fun. If you're interested in those things, I would recommend reading this. It's a pretty light... Not light, but I mean, it's a pretty, like, quick read. It's, you know, very propulsive. It's not that long. And then, you know, watch the movie when the movie's great, and you get to sort of compare and contrast the two. It's almost like drinking, like, it's almost like drinking, like, the budget whiskey and then drinking, like, the 15-year version, (laughs) and then you sort of compare and contrast them. It's sort of like a similar feeling. Yeah, I think it's more, it's very common these days for a book to be made into a movie, and I think this is sort of an interesting flip on that yeah I mean the movie turned out so good I'm wondering if maybe more screenwriters should try and take this cram green process of like write your thing as like a novella or a short story or something first before you write it as a screenplay that maybe that's the key yeah maybe 
I did read The Fallen Idol. Yeah, how was that? It's kind it's it's a story of a young boy who is left at home with two um, servants who live in the house. Mm-hmm. And the male I guess he's a butler or handyman. He ends up murdering his wife. The butler did it? The butler did it. But this story sort of was much more like a Hitchcock story than it was like a detective noir story. Because the little boy ends up, he idolizes, this is why it's called The Fallen Idol. He idolizes the butler and then when he finds out, he doesn't realize because of his age and his innocence that the butler is having an affair with a younger woman. And when his wife goes out of town, she comes over and then she comes home unexpectedly and he pushes her down the stairs. And then he ends up running away to the, and the police catch him and they're talking to him and they're like, we're going to take you home. And then when they take him home, he reveals to the police officer who brought him home because he thinks he's sort of like a little runaway child that there was a murder in his house. Okay. So, Interesting sort of thematic overlap with that and the third man of the like... You know, the, the third man could also be called the fallen idol. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's an interesting sort of story, and it does sort of have this sort of suspense, psychological thriller component that you don't find in the third man. But I thought it was interesting. I didn't see the movie. Same director, and the version that was in the book that we read, like I said in the earlier, is a revised version of the short story that's made to align more closely with the movie. Okay, cool. So that was interesting. Are we done? I think so. Have you? Uh, do you want to give a little sneak peek of what's coming up, or in the couple, in the oncoming months, since we're starting a fresh new year? Yeah, we wrote up our uh, our schedule for all of twenty twenty one. Nothing Let's is give a highlights. Don't yeah, give too much. Nothing is set in stone. I think until we say until we like announce it on the podcast, like. If you want to know definitively what we're going to do in a given month, tune into the previous month's comic book episode. But, yeah, we're going to cover, like, I, I'm pretty excited for this stuff we're covering this year. We're going to hit a lot of um, a lot of writers that I like that we haven't talked about yet. So we're going to, we're going to get uh, some Margaret Atwood. Yeah, we're doing more K. women. Yeah, more women. Um, yeah, some Margaret Atwood, some Octavia Butler. We're also, we're going to cover James M. Cain. Who we mentioned in this uh, episode, uh, some Philip K. Dick, uh, and just you know, again, we'll do what we normally do—like a mix of like, you know, different genres, like different eras. I think it's it's going to be a good year. And then on the comic book end, we're going to do a lot of Grant Morrison, you know, who's one of my favorite writers. We've hinted at covering their books uh, throughout the entirety of this podcast existence, so we're really going to hunker down and have a a good chunk of Grant. I think it will be interesting. And then finally, we're going to end far, far into the future in December with the often recommended and suggested to us Cozy Mystery. Yeah, we're finally going to cover a Cozy Mystery, which means it's interesting. I didn't think about this, but it's like we're ending or we're starting 2021 with one end of the spectrum and we're going to end on the totally opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. I'm excited though because I think a lot of we're going to be reading a mix of older classic material, um, cutting edge sci-fi. We're going to be reading some modern material. 
we're going to be sort of delving into, like you said, we're going to do some of the writers that surprisingly we haven't covered, like Philip K. Dick, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I think, the, you know, Atwood, Butler, and Dick are kind of like the, the big names that we've talked about or that, you know, we've read or that are influences on me that we haven't covered at all. So it'll be interesting to get into those. And then specifically for the next episode, we are going to read... We're doing a couple one-shots before we get into another comic book series. And so for our next episode, we're reading How to Be Happy by Eleanor Davis. Which I think will be just the second comic we've read that is done entirely by one cartoonist. Yeah. We haven't done one of those, I think, since we did uh, Chance of Providence by Becky Cloonan. And this is another, you know... It's a bunch of short stories. They're all drawn in different styles. More individual story more and shorter stories than chance of providence but uh this book's great i recommend if you want to read it before you read it you should definitely do that uh and it's all the vignettes are meditations on the theme of happiness but coming from all sorts of different angles so i think it's going to be a really interesting discussion i think that's a really relevant topic yeah <laughs> yeah it's almost like i planned it with a specific timing in mind yeah, yeah. um so yeah Spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.